You are listening to He Gave, the 2018 Christmas series at Bay City Church. For this and more audio and video resources, visit baycity.church. Well, there's tremendous anticipation about uh, Christmas, uh, especially around my house because I have the three kids, but um, the, everyone's pretty hyped about Christmas, and it gets more hyped and more hyped, and I think the social media adds to it because when you can see everyone getting hyped, you want to get hyped too, and so your tree's a little better than, you know, maybe your neighbor's because you can see it through the window, so you're trying to make it look good, you know what I mean? You're trying to get some presents wrapped nice and neat. Now, a couple years ago, I didn't know what I was doing with my tree, and so we went to Home Depot and bought like a a pre-set uh, ornament set of Martha Stewart ornaments. I'm like, oh, these look fine, I think. And I'm hanging them on there, and then I saw across the way the townhouse across from me's tree, and I was devastated. They had went to Lowe's, and I went to Home Depot, apparently. So they figured out how to direct, decorate their tree better. But there's a tremendous amount of anticipation, and everyone's freaking out right now. And you know it's the Christmas season when you're pulling out of a parking lot and a minivan with reindeer uh, antlers cuts you off, and then gives you the bird on the way out. So it's a, it's a Christmas season, right? Everyone's very excited. But there's tons of anticipation, right? Everyone's, there's, a, there's this anticipation that this tree and there's going to be gifts and the things you've longed for for so long are coming. You're finally going to get them. All of the things you've, especially if you're a young kid. I remember when I was 11, 12 years old, thinking about Christmas basically dominated my entire fall. Like, I liked Halloween. I was in. It was my favorite holiday. You know, Thanksgiving was a kind of a warm-up for Christmas. You know what I mean? It's coming, right? It's, I'm freaking out for, for the gifts. And so I'm leaving, you know, precarious notes around that, you know, this is what I'm looking at. And back then it was like the Toys R Us catalog and the, toy, and the Target. Oh, man, Toys R Us is gone. And uh, <laughs> Jeffrey's gone, man. And then um, I had the, uh, we had the, the Target thing open and circled with all of the gifts I want. And then, then Christmas Day comes, and most kids and even some teenagers and adults can't even sleep. We can't sleep. We wake up. We run to the tree like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, and we're longing for like this great moment of like, what's this present going to be? And we get to the tree, and we open all of our gifts, and we love it. It's exciting. But inevitably what happens is the post-holiday letdown, the post-holiday lull. Has everyone ever experienced that? If you've experienced like a tremendous post-holiday letdown, will you raise your hand? Like after the holidays are over, man, what do we do next, right? And you kind of try to convolute, you know, your sad thoughts with like New Year's resolutions, like that's somehow going to replace the, the deep, empty hole in your heart from Christmas being gone. And so you're, you're planning for what's coming, but nonetheless, you're left with the cold realities of yourself and what actually is in front of you. Credit card debt empty bank accounts. Man, I went ham on Christmas. And you're looking like, was it that much? I thought I was saving money. Oh yeah, I went there as well. I hit Target. I hit Crate and Barrel. I hit them all. Amazon came too many times. And you're just, your next door neighbor, you're like, oh, keeping up with the Joneses is different. Because it's like, how many times does a UPS truck visit your house? It's kind of like the new car in the driveway. You know what I mean? So you're, you're, you've got boxes in front of your house. You're excited. You also have an anticipation of another soon-to-be-failed New Year's resolution coming, right? Okay? <laughs> what? 88% of the New Year's resolutions are done by the end of January. So 
I mean, you're, if you've done it, congratulations for you. I, I've, I've finished one New Year's resolution over my entire life, so I failed a lot. And we're, we have this anticipation of what's taking place. But actually, the post-Christmas letdown is a real thing, okay? This isn't just kind of my hypothesis. It's actually a, a psychologist, Larry Broder, in the, New York, in the New York Times. He talks about the post-Christmas letdown in this way. He says this, when people are in a relatively euphoric mode, as we all are right now, most of us, as they are, as they are during the pre-holiday festivities, they have a tendency to throw caution to the wind, to overspend, to overeat, generally overdo it. Things tend to look great all around. For example, snow on Christmas Eve is delightful, but in mid-January on a Monday morning, it is a disagreeable nuisance. And I use the snow as a metaphor. Lots of things seem lovely during the holidays, but in January, you're dealing with the barren reality of too many sugar cookies. I added that last part. So many people have actually sought a way to cure this post-Christmas letdown, okay? And so this is what one author says to do. He says, this is his 10-step cure to a post-Christmas letdown. Now, I don't think this is authoritative, and you'll understand why, but here's a few of the steps. One of them is get a tree, because, like, you threw your Christmas tree out, and so you should get another plant, because it makes you feel happy. Good luck with that. Next one, time with family and friends. Like, yes, we need more time with family and friends after the holidays, so what you need to do is kind of go back around and spend even more time with family and friends. The next thing, new smells. And so because all the Christmas smells are gone, get some scented candles in your home. That will, that will help cure your deep, crippling depression from Christmas being gone. The next thing, write cards to people. That's actually a good one. Um, and then another one, keep up your Christmas lights, not just for December, but all year long. Why not? They make you happy. And then the last thing you can do is sing. Sing, sing, sing to get all of the depression away. All of these things are fine. All of these things are great. They're, they're, none of them are inherently bad. I like scented candles. There's nothing wrong with these. But none of them understand the depth of the real reason for the season's anticipation in the first place. Do you see where I'm going with this? See, all these, all these uh, festivities and decorations, they are all products of the season. But none of them are the source. They're all products of the season, but none of them are the source. And until you understand the source and, its origi and the original anticipation of the source in the first place, you'll always experience an unsatisfaction and a longing at this time of year. You'll always experience it. Now, as you watch your, wa as you watch your watch and your clock tick to and away from Christmas, I want to remind you today of why your clock ticks in the first place. You see, there's actually a reason we keep the clock in the first place. There is reason for it. There was a baby, as you heard in some of the songs, born in a manger, a barn that changed all of human history. Not just for Christians, not just for some people, but for all human history. You see, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, was born just over 2,000 years ago. And this isn't just the reason for the season, okay? This is the reason for everything we know. Everything. It's the reason for everything as we know it. Just look at Galatians chapter 4 with me. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Now, if you were reading this and you're like, I don't know what any of this meant, and you read that first part, the fullness of time. Let me explain to you this concept. The fullness of time. 
the apex of all clocks. The reason for the season and all seasons is right here. You see, the reason your clock ticks is to document the time when our Savior, Lord Jesus, had come into the world and to document the time in which he's going to come again. This is why we keep our clocks. You see, if you, maybe, maybe you think I'm being a little bit over the top with that. The reason why it's 2018 is because literally A.D. means Anno Domini, the year of the Lord. 2018 years ago was the estimate about when Jesus was living. And so we literally keep our our years because of, the, because of who Christ is, okay? So this fullness of time is incredibly important and valuable. The point of time, in other words, the reason for your clock, the fullness of it. See, Christmas fulfillment will find us when we find the source of the Christmas season, and this source is the fullness of time. Now, what's the great significance here? Why should a baby in a barn change the way we see the holidays, let alone our lives? Because many of us probably have some plans. We probably got our schedules that we are are concerned with. Why should this baby in a barn change the way I'm going to think about even the holiday season, let alone my entire life and way of thinking? Why? The first thing you need to know about this baby is that this baby's name is Jesus. And this Jesus is God in the flesh. Okay? It's God in the flesh. Now, if you didn't know that, In order to understand what significance this baby has for you, you need to first understand that this baby is God, okay? This is God. Now, I don't know about you, but I wasn't expecting God to show up in the form of eight pounds, six ounces baby. But look at verse 22 of our text with me. All of this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Quote, behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, Verse 22 and 23 here are quoting an Old Testament prophet named Isaiah. Isaiah wrote his book 700 years prior to the birth of Jesus. And so this quote here you're reading here sounds conspicuously like Jesus. And in fact, you'd be right. This wasn't just a prediction. It was a prophecy. You see, God gave the, the, Isaiah, the prophet, the word from, from himself that this would take place. And he wrote it down seven centuries before. Um, there's a, a, many of you guys have heard of, uh, of The Case for Christ. There's a, a big novel called The Case for Christ where it's an investigative look at a former Chicago Tribune, a writer who basically investigatively looked at the life of Jesus. And, at the, and one of the things he did when he finally found out and believed that Jesus was the Lord and Savior and he was born in this barn was he took Isaiah 14 and he wrote it on pieces of paper and he put them all over every single desk in the Chicago Tribune's office. And afterwards, he came back around a few hours later, and he asked everyone, he said, okay, everyone, who do you think this is about? And they all said, well, I mean, it's pretty obvious this is about Jesus Christ. And he's like, exactly. But this was written 700 years before Jesus was born. Pretty powerful. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't know about anybody else that was conceived by a virgin. Now, that seems like pretty crazy. There may be maybe some people claim that was true, but ultimately, this is probably the only time that's ever happened, Okay. Now, another thing to note here is it says that they shall call his name Emmanuel. Well, Jesus and Emmanuel essentially have the similar meaning. You see, Jesus means Yahweh is salvation or Jesus saves. 
or Jesus is with us. There's many different translations. In Emmanuel, obviously, it says that God is with us. And so these names are very, very similar. Now, some of us probably had a different vision of what God was going to look like, okay? Like, that's me. And so as I'm seeing this, I'm looking at Jesus and Emmanuel meaning the same thing, and I'm seeing this prophecy. When I was a non-believer, and I didn't understand Jesus, I was looking at this and saying, okay, this makes a lot of sense to me. But this also didn't make sense to the, the Israelites either. You see, the Israelites were God's chosen people. And God's chosen people were predicted to have a Savior, a Messiah, come through his line. And so they were actually waiting for a Savior. But even when one shows up, they didn't recognize him. This didn't look like him. You see, they anticipated this mighty king who was going to come and free them from Roman oppression and injustice. They were, they were anticipating some guy kicking in a door like Schwarzenegger with all sorts of jewels and saying, this way, everybody, and he's got a sword, and they charge, and there's a big war. Wow, amazing, here's our king, here he is. But instead, they get a little tiny baby born in a barn in the middle of nowhere town. Middle of nowhere, no one around. His parents and some animals. See, they went to an inn to check in, uh, like what would be a modern-day hotel, and there was, no, there, was no, um, there was no occupancy for them. And so what did they do? She's about to have a baby. She found, she, they find a manger, and they give birth in a manger. That's where Jesus is born. A quiet, quiet night. All alone. This is where Jesus is born. No fanfare, okay? No live stream on YouTube or Instagram, okay? None of it. No, no followers, just a quiet night, the Savior's been brought in the world. Which brings me to my second point, which is God shows up in ways you least expect. God shows up in ways you least expect. And this is true for the Israelites, but it's also true for Jesus' own adopted father, Joseph. Look at verse 18 with me. Look, I'm going to read some of this. Now, the birth of Jesus took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, there he is, before they came together, that's before they, before they were married, before they had sex, Okay? They, they were found to be, she was found to be with child. And her husband Joseph, being just a man and unwilling to put her to shame, like he was a nice guy, he didn't want to shame her, said, I'm going to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, an angel of the Lord appeared in, into a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. For that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit, and she will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save all people from their sins. You see that? So Joseph and Mary were engaged, okay? Modern-day engagement, probably close. They were betrothed, and in that day, you were betrothed for a year. And you had a year of betrothal leading up to your inevitable marriage. And so if you were betrothed, you still had to go through the process of divorce because it was like you were married, but you hadn't gone through all of the the processes of married. There was no uh, marriage fights over dishes yet. None of that had taken place, okay? They still had separate houses. They didn't live together. What? You think we fight over dishes? No, I'm just kidding. That's my wife. So we fight over, there, there were no marriage fights, none of that taking place. They had not been married. They, they, so what they, Joseph had to do was he had to go through a legal divorce if he was going to divorce her. And so he's all prepared to do this. And Mary shows up pregnant, his wife, his, his fiance, and then an angel shows up. So one day his fiance is pregnant, like, man, I got to get a divorce. The next day an angel from the Lord shows up. Okay, now there's a lot going on in Joseph's life, okay? This all must have been pretty overwhelming. Okay, I, some people get overwhelmed really easily, right? Like, we got a lot of food to cook. Well, uh, he's got a lot more than that going on his plate, okay? Must have been overwhelming. This is how God decides to come into the world. He decides to go into a betrothed young couple 
and give this teenager a child and she would be maligned, she would be gossiped about, mocked because the fact that she was a teenager and she was pregnant and not yet married. But this is how God decides. Now some of us in our lives, we have expectations for what God is supposed to do and how he's supposed to work in our lives and who he's supposed to save. We have expectations that how God is going to act, look, think, and believe. We think he should act this way. If he doesn't act this way, then he must not be real. He must not be true. Sometimes you're thinking about the way God is supposed to act in your life, and you're thinking he's supposed to deliver all of the goods that you're longing, all of the, the, heart, the desires in your heart. If he doesn't produce those, then he must not be real. He must not be true, or at the very least, he must not be very friendly. But sometimes our expectations of God don't match the truth about God. Sometimes our expectations of God don't match the truth about him. You see, there's a, a movie, maybe many of you have seen, The Stepford Wives. Have you seen that movie? Stepford Wives, uh, essentially they have these wives that essentially basically listen and do everything that their husbands say because these husbands are dreaming up. What would it be like if all of our wives did everything we asked all of the time? And so what do they get? They get wives that do everything they ask all of the time. And what do the men find? The men find that while it is nice at first that they've got essentially a servant that does everything they want all of the time, eventually the relationship is not there. That it's nice to have someone be a servant, but I don't have a spouse, I have a servant. And some of us look at God as a Stepford God. If God would only do the things we're asking of God, then he'd be a good God. You want a God that will never contradict you, never tell you if you're wrong, and you probably have a step for God, not a step for God of this, not a God of this story. You're longing for a relationship with God, but you want a relationship of God that, will, that God will do everything you tell him to do, and nothing, he will never require anything of you. You know, if, if you think God only has good things to say to you, you'll miss out on much of what God has to say. See, actually, the truth is that God actually has a, understands the world a lot better than us, and he under, he's been around a lot longer, and he has insight into things that are good for us. And not everything that we desire or ask for is actually good for us long term, which is, leads me directly into my next point, that's that, and that's that God is with us. Okay, so he's God in the flesh. He shows up in ways we least expect, but now he's God with us. Focus on this word, with. Okay, and that's his name's meaning. Remember verse 23? God is Emmanuel, which means God with us many of us have kind of these warped views of god maybe even when you hear the word god it kind of makes you queasy inside maybe you get a little uneasy because you're thinking of this kind of ruling reigning warring dictator this dictator that tells me what to do and slaps me on the hand when i'm wrong and throws me in time out puts me in the corner puts me on the stool with the dunce cap but god isn't a warring dictator looking to hit you with a lightning bolt every time you step on a crack on the sidewalk. That is not the character of God. You see, God is actually a deeply personal God. He's deeply personal. He's so personal that he came wearing human flesh into the world. God himself, human flesh, to live amongst his people, to experience what humanity would experience. Now, I challenge you to figure out what other God has ever done that mythical, mythological, other religious God? What other God has ever been to the same nature as his people? What God? Hmm? What Greek mythology, what Greek God has ever done that? None. The God of Islam, the God of Mormonism haven't done that. The God of our own political ideologies certainly can't do that. 
The gods of Hinduism would never stoop to the level of taking on human flesh as Jesus did. But Jesus did. He stooped to the level of humanity. Not only that, he suffered as we have too. Now what God would suffer for his people? There's many gods that are gonna, certainly going to smite out things when they need to smite them out. But, but what God would suffer alongside of his people, maybe for his people, maybe by the hands of his own people, what God would do that? First, or Hebrews 4.15 says this, For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. You see, you see this, Jesus? He came in that, mar- that manger that ba- as a baby. He lived uh, like a baby. He probably was a better kid than most, but nonetheless, he was a baby, and he grew up, and he was tempted with sin just like we are. He suffered just like we did. When you suffer, Jesus suffered. When you experience broken relationships, broken families that some of you are feeling even today, anxiety, lost friendships, even death itself, remember that the Scripture talks about that Jesus himself suffered all of these things right alongside of you. No other God has ever said he can do that. He's with us. And then the last thing is that God is for us. God is for us. So he comes in the flesh as God. He shows up in ways we least expect him. He is with us, and he's also for us. Many of us think God has, their, God has his own agenda. God's kind of doing his own thing. He's busy. That's my story, if I'm honest with you. Um, when, I was, when I was walking through uh, some of the struggles I had as a young person in my life, I remember being stressed, being tired, being hurt, and thinking, where is God right now? He must be busy. He must have some more um, appointments on his calendar. He's probably not here. He's probably off curing disease in Africa or saving or battling alongside some valiant warriors, but certainly he's not here with me in this quiet little town. He's not here with me. But this is not true. God is here he's with us. You see, God is not like your earthly mother and father. Many of us, what we do is we, we look at who our earthly mother and father is, and that's our only vision of what a parental figure looks like in our life. And what we'll do is we'll attribute the way our mother or our father treated us, good or bad, to God. So if our dad was distant, God's distant. If our dad was angry, God's angry. If our dad was, or our mother was judgmental, our God, dad and our, mom, our God is judgmental. He doesn't like us. He's not for us. If your dad was a pushover, God's the pushover. We see that. We see that we attribute that. But God is different. God isn't a a metaphysical, spiritual, although he is all these things. He's not some distant, um, deist, deistic, what do they call it? Uh, uh, Therapeutic, deistic God in the sky. He's, He's not that. He's a deeply personal God that's for us, guys. He's for us. And he wants to help you. That's another thing you need to say. He's actually on your side. Many of us think that, uh, you know, sometimes I, everything you want is against God, what God wants. That's not actually true. God actually wants what's best for you. He actually longs for what's best for you. But sometimes he knows what's best for you and you don't. And sometimes it's important to understand that. I can think of my kids. I, my, sometimes my kids, uh, they want several candy canes on a Sunday morning, for instance. Not this one, I swear. And I know as their father that if they eat seven candy canes, they'll die. Okay, so they need to not have seven, maybe just two, and even that's ridiculous, okay? So, especially when I know what they ate for breakfast. So it's important to understand those things, that God sees things differently than we see them. It's very important. In fact, God loves us so much, he actually sets out to solve our age-old problem for all of us in humanity. Verse 21, she will, that's Mary, bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, 
for he will save people from their sins. Now, God's cool to hang out with, but he didn't just come to hang out on earth with you because you're awesome, okay? He actually came because we needed him. He came because we needed God. Not only is God helping you along your life, he's actually inviting you into his greater story, but one of the greatest hamperings of you being a part of God's story is our own sin and brokenness. We can see that right there. He says he will save people from them, their sins. Even the best among us fall short, friends. Even the best among us. You may be here and you think, man, I can't think. I mean, we're basically living good lives. I don't understand what all of the issues are about. Well, even the best of us are falling. Look at I mean, the best of our politicians, our athletes, our movie stars, our businessmen, and even pastors. They're all being found out. They're all being discovered for what they're, all the shame that they have in their lives. Now, certainly the advent of technology and social media gives us kind of this insight into their personal lives. But what do we find? We find inevitably that they're broken. You see, social media doesn't create people. It shows you who they are. And what we see, into, we see into the, deprava- or the, the, the depravity into the souls of people. We all sin. We're all broken. We all fail. And we hurt other people. Now, when's the last time you hurt someone you loved? When's the last time you hurt, you were hurt by someone you love? When's the last time you hurt someone that you didn't love at all, you just wanted to hurt them? Those are good ways to see where, you're, where you where sin. Now, some of the common, common feedback on that is like, well, hey, listen, I don't want to play by all these rules. I just feel like if we just live a good life, then that's what's most important. So I'll, I'll submit to you and say this. If you feel that way, I think you have a right heart. It is important that we live a good life. But if you take Jesus Christ's grace out of it, what you're left with is morality. You're saying that as long as we live good, then we'll get in. And I have to ask you, where's the line? At what point do we cross the line and we're no longer in? What point? We all have varying degrees. Jesus says, all sin and fall short of the glory of God. But listen, I'm going to also solve the problem for you, okay? I'm coming into the life to, sol- to solve it for you. And he provides the solution. He provides it in the form of a gift. Romans 6, 23, says, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life those in, for those in Christ Jesus our Lord. God is for those who accept his free gift of grace. Friends, do you want to accept that gift today? If you haven't already. Hey, do you want to remember you have it in the back of your car? Some of us live lives. We don't have, there's no mark of grace on us at all. We're working so hard to please God subliminally. Do you want to remember you have that gift? Hey, in conclusion, don't be, don't be discouraged by the wrapping paper of this gift either. You know, no other religion is, is going to worship a little tiny baby uh, wearing a cloth in a manger 2,000 years ago, born into a rural town where no one's watching. But sometimes the best gifts are wrapped in the smallest of packages. Sometimes the best gifts are wrapped in the smallest of packages. And the greatest gift you can receive, friends, today is freedom. You see, the, the reasons you're experiencing all of the longing and the, the, the semi-depression and uh, emptiness around this season is because you were created to experience something more. See, the original echo of this season was the anticipation that the solving of our greatest problems was coming. And as we longed for it, we, there was a, a time in ancient Israel where they longed for Jesus to show up, 
that a solving agent for the, the, the brokenness that they wore in themselves was actually coming. And when this, this baby shows up, he provides a way. A way that, hey, I don't have to go to the altar anymore. I don't have to sacrifice this giant animal. And not only that, those of us who are not Israelites also get to play. That Jesus didn't die just for the people of God in Israel. He died for all those who would accept the free gift. It's beautiful. Now, every time you look down at your watch or your phone, and you're looking at your watch or you're checking your phone and you're seeing that phone tick, remember that each second that ticks is ticking away from a moment that changed all of humanity. And not only that, your watch is ticking forward to a time where this baby is coming back as God. And he's coming back not just to hang out, but to judge the living and the dead and to put an end to all evil. You see, the greatest symbol of all of our holidays is that evil will be smitten for good. Christmas is a celebration that no longer do I have to be a slave to my own broken unrighteousness, my envy, my jealousy, my lust, my slander, my pride, my maliciousness, my anger, my jealousy, my bitterness. I don't have to be a slave to my depression. I don't have to be a slave to my greed. All of it goes away. And one day it's coming for good and we get to go free. I think, uh, I'll just close with this. I, uh, I think there's a time in which you know, in San Francisco, planting a church, sometimes it can feel a little bit lonely. Um, there's, a, there's a lot going on in a city like this. And as you guys know, if you live in the Bay Area, you understand that no matter, just because there's a lot of people doesn't mean you feel like you're with a lot of people. Sometimes you feel lonely. But every time I feel lonely, I remember what Jesus must have been like in that manger. That I can look around and see cars drive by and buildings and I can see the bustling of everything happening. But Jesus, the Savior of humanity that will one day trickle into this room even right now, 2018 years later, he was born in this quiet little barn with his parents. And no one saw him. And there was probably sheep and cattle and animals. And I think if, if quiet's good enough for Savior, it's good enough for me. And uh, I'm thankful for what Jesus did. Let me pray with you. Father God, it's not lost on me that some of us here, while some of us are anticipating this great coming season and fun and excitement, that some of us are anticipating grief, stress, sorrow from those that have lost, anxiety from being around people. But Lord God, you're the Prince of Peace. You come quietly, Lord God, and you can quiet our storms. So Lord Jesus, for those here that are are wondering what's next in this season as they experience maybe perhaps the worst time of their, of their year, that you quiet the waters and allow them to walk across with you. And for those of us here that may, may have a longing and a depression, post-Christmas depression coming, Lord, that they may actually see the real longing they're longing for is the groan of their own flesh, longing for something to be perfected in them that you delivered and are delivering. So I pray for everyone here, regardless of where they're at, that they may go with peace, but they may experience the Prince of Peace in a way that could change them. In Jesus' name, amen.